Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Reader podcast is Ryan Mulvaney. Ryan is the founder of Quiver, a self-proclaimed Amazonaholic, and has facilitated over $1 billion in sales on Amazon. He sold Quiver to a strategic partner in 2017 and is still currently involved advising clients in consumer products, private equity, venture capital, and startups. Ryan, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. So obviously, you've had a really interesting, unique entrepreneurial journey. I'd love to get into that. But what was like your first spark in terms of getting into entrepreneurship? I don't know if I've ever like talked about this. I mean, back in the day, my buddy and I sold these watches in high school. In high school, we had some catalog where we, we, you could change the dial face, like you could get a custom dial face of a watch. And so we created them and made them. And I think I bought his and he bought mine. We didn't actually sell any of them. And then when, uh, when CDs came out and you could like burn CDs, I had a stint where I was selling like, like custom CDs to people if they liked punk rock music, really. <laughs> so I didn't really have a lot of songs that I downloaded outside of that genre. But what it was cool is like, it allowed you to give your perspective on things, layer it onto a product, and then give it to people and appreciate sort of your take on it. And I thought that was a really sort of unique thing that you could make money off of. I didn't really think of it in those terms at the time, but I was like, this is cool. Like maybe that maybe there's something you can do with your creative brain here and you know, kind of go your own path in life. What was your purview at that point? Like what were you thinking of in terms of just careers? I mean, if you were at all, I mean, were you thinking about entrepreneurship or like what was on your mind in terms of that future job for yourself? I did take a marketing class and I think entrepreneur was the biggest word I could spell at the time because, you know, grammar and spelling were never my strong suits. Had a rad teacher, but ultimately, you know, I didn't really think about my life of being an entrepreneur. You know, at the time I liked playing baseball, I liked to surf, I liked to eat burritos. My dad always had his own business. He had a veterinary practice. So the idea of working for yourself was just sort of inherently built into me. He never had a corporate job. And so in that, I always figured that that's kind of what work was like, less like, hey, I'm going to go in that direction. I was like, oh, that's just it. And so I got pretty accustomed to him working long hours, working at home, having no sacred time being a veterinarian, getting calls on the weekend, going in, doing emergency surgeries. Uh, And so that was more life than it was work. And there was just this, he did a very good job balancing it. Even though he brought his work home, he didn't emotionally bring his work home. He was always there and very present with us. So I think that in hindsight was a very strong suit that he had that I try to mimic, but don't always get right. Yeah, it's funny. You and I have a pretty uh, unique intersection there in terms of you know my parents also being vets, veterinarians, that is, and owning their own practice. And I, I never thought about my dad as a, a business guy or an entrepreneur. And I always look to the people in my community and friends, dads and whatnot, but Definitely, I know that influenced me a lot in terms of just like going off and doing my own thing in later later years. Yeah, I also like you know I'm fast forwarding here, but we can come back to it. But years later, I would I would help him take his practice to the market and sell it. 
And this was after I'd built and sold something. And so, but I remember going through his business and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like, you know, life and death is on the line with the work you do. And, you know, for us, like life's on the line. Like we try to make people's lives better by what we do, but we're certainly not, you know, the, the antithesis of what we, we don't do is, is, you know, people die. And I was like, man, this is such a grown up business that he had all these years. And I felt like such a kid again. I was like, oh man, my, my little Amazon thing, like whatever. Yeah, not exactly a little Amazon thing. But yeah, let's let's actually fast forward to that. Like, what was the spark that just first got you involved in the Amazon marketplace? The first spark to get me into Amazon was unintentional of my wife, uh, I guess my fiance at the time, finishing a college course and handing me a textbook. And, and you know, I was, I think at that moment, a kayaking tour guide. I'd gone through college. I got the job that I went to college for which was in news production. I was like, oh, I'll go into the news industry. And then all the newscasters told me to not be a newscaster because it's they're not happy. Anyway, so I ended up leaving and I just wanted to be outside for a summer. Kayaking tour guide it was awesome. Not making a lot of money, but you know, in the sun, having fun. And my wife, fiance, hands me this textbook and says, hey, put this on Amazon. My girlfriend just sold it. I was like, all right, I guess I, I can figure out how to do that. And so I put it up and it, it sold really quickly. And I was like, well, that was easy. I'd, I didn't actively do anything to sell that. I mean, in fact, she gave it to me. And so I, uh, I looked around and there were books everywhere. And so I put those up and those sold, you know, overnight, like half of the, I don't know, 50 books I listed sold. I was like, this feels too easy. Maybe I should lean into this a little bit more. And so I just kept trying to find more books and it, it kind of grew from there. Yeah. Like what was that evolu- evolution? I know you've sold a bunch of different things, but like, how did you go about sourcing you know, materials and products to sell and what were the kinds of things you sold and how do you go about learning that process? Because it can be a little bit tricky and cumbersome to figure that all out. Yeah. So I would have been in like my early 20s at this point, living at home. My fiance also lived at home. We came home because we couldn't afford to not be at home after college. And so sourcing is funny, like sourcing the books, I was very cheap. Like I had a very low threshold of, of what I had to sell. I just wanted it to make about a third of a burrito. And then it was, it was worth my time sort of selling it. So I would like get these books from libraries because the libraries couldn't keep up with the donations. And uh, I would donate a third of whatever I made back into their library box. Like they had this little thing and you just stuff cash into it. They were just happy that I was there kind of like turning inventory on their shelves. And so it grew from there because, oh, so let me go back a little bit. So Selling library books. And then I would wrap them in grocery bags because, you know, I didn't want to like pay for packaging if I didn't. I had such low margins anyway. And so I would literally like sell the books. I'd wrap them all up. And then on my lunch break at a tech job, not a glorified tech job. I was like a customer service person. But during my lunch breaks, I would go ship the books. So you, you learned a lot about customer service and Amazon's customer service standards and taking care of customers and all that. And I'm having a blast. It, you know, initially it was called One Love Books because I wanted to fund my honeymoon. And you know, it, it did, which was cool. And then I was like, man, I'll just do this thing till I get to my honeymoon, then I'll turn it off. And literally like when we got there, my, my store had been turned off for like two days and I had this like anxiety, like I wasn't making money. And, uh, even though I had another job, but I, like, I wasn't making money like on my own. And so like I convinced the place down in Belize that, that I needed to get on their Wi-Fi so I could reactivate all the store, my store so I could keep selling and I think at that point, I realized like this isn't going away. I, I guess this is uh, something I'm going to have to deal with probably for the rest of my life, this sort of addiction to be moving and turning and hopefully making money. What was the business like at then? Was that just you or was it you and your wife or do you have a whole team behind you? Just me. The part where my wife came in was 
during the launch of the Kindle terrified me. I was like, oh, no one's going to read books anymore. I'm going to have to start selling other things. But I live at home and I don't have a storage unit and I'm cheap and I'm not going to go get one. So I learned, well, I didn't know what it was called at the time, but drop shipping. And I figured out all of these companies that were sort of blind shipping, you know, to say Toys R Us or blind shipping to Home Depot. And I would connect with the manufacturers and they would set up drop shipping accounts for me. So where I looped my wife in was sort of seasonally, I would bring her in and then she'd be like basically putting in all these manual drop shipping orders because I'm no programmer. I can't like tie things together like that. So we're like manually sort of churning. And it was fun, man. I She enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. We got a lot of credit card points, which was cool. <laughs> so, But it was always, again, it was just a complete side hustle. Of, you know, it was, it was subsidizing our income. You know, we were able to like move out and, and get a place, you know, but, you know, as much as I was making, she was making more as a waitress in cash tips, you know, so it wasn't like this crazy, crazy lucrative business, but it was a, it was a way towards financial freedom, which I think I appreciated. Yeah. I think a lot of people think about entrepreneurs and the, the total outliers, like the Instagrams that turned into just a, although it was a pretty significant pivot, but in, it sounds like you guys were bumping along a little bit. Like what was the big thing that put that rocket fuel behind the business and took it to a whole nother level that wasn't just like a fun little side hustle. There were a couple experiments throughout the years while I was still employed at a tech at the tech startup. We launched a mask, like this face mask thing during the uh, the election. And so we were selling Obama and um, Romney masks. And we're like, man, we th- I think Romney's gonna win because you know we sold way more Romney masks than Obama. But then we figured out that that the the, the Romney masks just had better ranking on the Amazon site. So we had like a total misconception and we were also selling like around the hall. So we had like, we were selling costume masks with an election season during Halloween. So it was like really cool. And then once we got to the other side of it, we're like, Hey, I don't, I don't know where this is going. So we kind of pulled back and, and ultimately it became a real business circa 2012, probably 2014, where I actually was working at that tech startup. I got laid off. Like two days later, I got a call from a buddy who happened to be working at a a digital agency, which I always kind of wanted to move towards. You know, being at a tech startup, I moved from doing customer service into project management. I was doing a lot of tech project management. So I was really enjoying like the tech pieces of this um, tech startup. And so when I landed at a digital agency, I asked him why he wasn't offering Amazon as a service to his clients. And, you know, at that time, you know, 20, actually this would have been like 2012. Amazon was like this dirty word. It was like a trigger word for a brand. It was like eBay. Like, why would we ever pay attention to Amazon? That's, that's gross. It's going to like diminish our brand. And so he luckily didn't think that way. And we convinced a few of the brands that he had to not think that way. And we realized that we could have a a big enough business here that just focused on Amazon as a service versus all the other things that his agency did. So we ended up spinning it out on into its sort of own entity outside of this agency. So it was at that point then that you were like the the president and CEO of that of that separate spinoff. Yeah, it was the the one man band, and then uh, we we uh, we did a lot of manual stuff. It was me and, and then two partners, but I was the guy doing the work. And, uh, and then our first employee was my cousin because <laughs> he was the only one I think that I could convince to come over into this crazy venture. But we did have, you know, signals, you know, our, our model essentially was give brands the presence on Amazon that, that they've been ignoring. And out of that presence, we can give them meaning beautiful content, you know, nice images, rankings, consistency, which then leads to better reviews. You know, we were getting 
quite a bit of sales very quickly. So we knew that there were signals there of this thing being really big. And so I think I was able to at least get my cousin in on that thesis. It was either this or a bank job. And he, he came over luckily to us. That's a big move for sure. I think it's interesting actually is you talk about almost like shifting perceptions about, you know, Amazon being a dirty word at the time. Like, how do you go about getting some of those big brands? I know you've had some just incredibly large and successful consumer products companies and different brands that have worked with you over the years. But how did you go about shifting that perception to get them to take that leap and not have their chief marketing officer wait and say, this is going to diminish our brand and, you know, the equity that we have built around that brand? It's a great question. You know, unfortunately, the people that had been selling on Amazon up to that point had created the problem and it had created that stigma because the brands were ignoring the channel. So they would go out and just source it from wherever they could get it. They had no direct relationship with the brand. And then they could sell it at any price with any content, any inconsistency, because, you know, they were just trying to move product. And so we told that story to the brands and, and how we could solve that. And then we actually gave them money to do it. So we would buy their product and then sell it on their behalf, which we thought was like the coolest sales value prop ever. But as soon as we told them like, hey, we're ready to you know, write you a big check and buy product, there was, they're like, what's the catch? We're like, no, 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 there's no catch. Like, We're going to make money by selling your product. They're like, but yeah, there's a catch here because you know, they'd been burned from people randomly selling their stuff on Amazon. Like, You're going to buy it and just discount it, aren't you? We're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Like, We'll sign an agreement. We will not discount your product. Okay, but you will. And, and so you really had to like gain their trust. And luckily over time is more companies like ours stood up and you know did above board practices. There was a nice healthier level of trust, you know, for the services we were offering, but it did take time. And at that point, we also had more competition. Yeah, I think that's really interesting is that that first time just ability to get a company to take a, a leap, especially with a service provider. Like how do you go about doing that? I mean, I, I think many of us experience that. I think whether it's or even just getting the, the first time leap into a job and getting an employer to hire you to do something you haven't done before. Like, how do you go about actually developing that level of trust so that a, a you know, large, successful entity you hadn't sold to the Amazon channel would actually trust you guys to actually go do that? I'm a big fan of skin in the game and honesty. <laughs> so, so those two things, the very the genesis of our model, you know, we looked at them and said, hey, we think we can optimize the channel. This is how I've, I've done it before with my own little science experiment. If we had a consistent supply of their inventory, we think we could sell it. And if we sell consistent inventory at a consistent price, it's going to get better reviews, which are going to lead to more sales. So we, you know, behind the scenes, we're like, there's a model here, but a traditional agency would just come in and charge a fee for it. And we didn't feel comfortable charging a fee for it because, you know, behind the scenes, we were like, I don't know if this is going to work. And so instead of coming at them with, hey, let's re retain us and, and we'll sell for you, you know, we'll help you sell, but we're going to charge you for it. And if you don't sell anything, you've still paid us. We spun the model and said, well, all right, we're just going to buy your inventory and then we're going to sell it ourselves. And it was our way of sort of putting our money where our mouth is. And if, if we couldn't deliver, we felt better about losing money on it, having us lose money on it than them you know, ultimately, because and ultimately these were like longstanding relationships that my, my business partner had. So we didn't want to do anything to sort of burn those bridges either. So what was the company like at that time? So it was you plus three or I think two partners plus your cousin, like, did it grow quickly? Like what was the evolution of that business? And just what were some of the, the wins and the big trajectory changing opportunities that really shifted that for you guys? In the beginning, we had two models. It was, you know, one help brands sell their products on Amazon. And then the other was look at trends and develop our own products. 
And so we very quickly realized there was more top-line revenue available if we helped for us, for our capabilities, to help brands sell their products on Amazon. So we leaned further into that model. So I think our second hire was a salesperson who could comb through trade show lists. uh, And then we'd run an analysis of sales opportunity and figure out who we were going to talk to. And our first clients were all in the beauty category. So we were really leaning into the beauty list, the beauty trade shows. And if we could get in front of you at a trade show and show you that we were real people, even if they didn't want to do the deal because they wanted to sort of see it through, it was just great getting FaceTime with them. So we needed somebody sort of combing all those lists. So that would have been the third. The fourth hire, just under that sort of (laughs) ragtag team, the business grew quite significantly. And then we brought in, I believe our fourth was our our COO, who we couldn't afford, but she had worked at a big Amazon business herself, had run one. And I had happened to meet her at a trade show that I'd gone to a few years before. And I gave her a call. She was kind of doing yoga on the beach. She got out of a job and was trying to figure out the next phase of life. And I'm like, can you can you at least come in and talk to us to just tell us how bad this idea is? And she luckily liked us and we like I knew we were gonna like her. And she jumped on board and she really was this catalyst, right? Of like, oh, here's all these things I'm not very good at that she represents that will pay for themselves quickly because you know she's adding incremental value to our business like every day with what she brings to the table. How did you go about just learning and growing? I mean, you went from this guy who's hustling out of, I don't know where you were storing the books, but you know, your parents' house or in a garage or whatnot to now you're essentially the, the leader of a company who's now leading a team. Like, how, how did you go about growing and actually getting better? Because I think so many people can relate to that, not just startup entrepreneurs, but people that work for large companies. Most of them don't have the infrastructure to really grow and develop them. Maybe they do for the role they're in, but not probably not what's coming around the corner. Like, how did you go about figuring that out? Like, how do you become that CEO? And what are the things that you learned to go become better? You know, I think one, I had the the benefit of business partners that were older than me, but still active. And then one specifically who'd built and sold agencies before. So he knew the trajectory, like what we would need from a cash flow perspective and employee perspective. So anytime that it got a little hairy, it's kind of like when you're on the battlefield and bolts fly overhead and everyone's head, who's, who's, whose heads do you turn to? And, you know, I turned to him and he just wouldn't even be rattled. He's like, oh yeah, that's like, there's a cash flow thing we're doing. I'm like, cash flow? What's, what's cash flow? I don't even know what that is. And so he was able to really sort of comment and give, you know, sort of that North Star of where, of where we want to go. From a leadership perspective, I have so many inadequacies <laughs> as a human. It would be impossible for me to try to do a lot of things. Like I can be, you know, I, I remember back in the day, someone's like, you're a jack of all trades, you know, and then <laughs> and they stop there and I'm like, yeah, but a master of none. And so I, I, I can, I can do a lot of things. I can keep a lot of plates spinning, but you know, it's not the best use of my time and someone's going to be way better at doing certain things than me. And so when we brought in the COO, I mean, we called her a CEO, but we were sort of co-CEOs. I never um, felt this desire to be like the leader of the company and have people like walk behind me. I always felt like, hey, let's just link arms and walk together because we're all kind of trying to solve the same problem. And if we can do it and enjoy it together, I just feel like that's going to be a better way like that's the way I would want to be led, but I know it's not for everybody. Yeah, one of the things I think is interesting is that you know, as an early scrappy entrepreneur, I, I know you're a big tinkerer. You've mentioned a few times testing ideas, looking at the data, but obviously, as the company grows and, vol- and evolves, and you're not necessarily maybe in the day to day of some of that. Like, how do you really inspire that sense of entrepreneurial spirit in these people that are now 
maybe they weren't entrepreneurs before, they've come into this organization and need to just source new ideas and look for new products, whether you're creating them on your own or, or selling new brands. Like, how do you go about keeping that spirit alive once you start to grow to get to that certain stage? I think it's being pragmatic about reality and who you're hiring. We tended to hire more for aptitude versus like experience uh, and, and, you know, attitudes versus experience, because we knew that if we could get somebody sort of fresh out of college, a year or two of work under their belt, we could really still mold them into something that they want to become versus trying to look at something and then like renovate it back into, you know, try to get the bad habits out of somebody who's going to come in with their own sort of playbook. And, you know, it, it's great bringing people in with their own playbook. If that's what you want, we had a playbook, we liked our playbook. And so we didn't necessarily need that from people. So we always found going younger uh, tended to be better with that. If you're sculpting them in an entrepreneurial environment, you just have to be honest with yourself that at some point they're going to leave the nest because they're going to want to do it themselves. And you can't get mad at them when they do that. And so I always thought of it as sort of a core value of I'm here to help you fulfill what you want in life. And life is a much bigger thing than business. And if you feel like you're on that trajectory, you're going to do better at your job because you feel like you're at least walking in the right direction. Even if you're going to walk out our door at some point, I never wanted to be foolish enough to think that like this was everything. This is their entire life. And it doesn't make it any easier when they leave. And it doesn't make it any cheaper when you have to keep, you know, you, you pay to keep them. And we were able to keep up with people pretty well and, until the point w- in which we sold. And then when we sold, we, you know, it wasn't our payroll. It was a multi-billion dollar company's payroll and the types of incentive packages we put in front of people to keep them motivated and keep them growing as our industry was growing. We couldn't do that anymore. And so I didn't, I didn't anticipate that after sale, that that could happen. But it, I, I guess now when you, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like if I was a big company, that's how you'd have to do. You have to standardize it. Otherwise, kind of wild. Yeah, it's interesting stuff that you said in terms of just like developing and growing your people. One of the, a person actually interviewed for the podcast this, this recently, he talked about you know, if you do invest in your people, you run the risk of them leaving. If you don't, you run the risk of having a bunch of amateurs that work around your company, which I thought was kind of an interesting perspective. It's a great perspective. And then I think it's also one of the things, if I could go back, I, I would do differently is we were sort of head, so heads down on this rocket ship that we had built, you know, that when it came to the time of an exit, I, I wish we had put together an employee stock pool that allowed them to, you know, share on the upside you know, because it would have been cool if we, again, if we're linking arms and running together, if that's the, the management style, it would make sense to, to share in it. And we tried to share in it as much as we could with strategic employees, but it would have been cool if it wasn't like a favor that we're doing. It was like, you know, there's something that's locked in for you so that you can feel, you know, motivated and inspired to, to grow. I think that's always a little demoralizing. It's like, okay, I do a great job. We grow this company. It's really a not the entire population, not every employee benefits from that from a financial perspective. That can be tricky. So yeah, building that in, that's a great, great point of advice for sure. And, and like from, from, from the beginning, you know, from the beginning when there's no value, like when it's cheap, from the beginning, whatever you're doing, just keeping people, you know, motivated the right way. Yeah, it's so cool when you hear about just these fantastic exits and just every employee from the frontline employee all the way up to the, the founder and co-founders just have a significant exit and they can go and buy that house or do something they never thought was just even imaginable for them. They're really cool. So you talk about a lot of interesting things. I think given the space you're in, it obviously lends itself from an e-commerce perspective to use a lot of data. 
I heard you talk about just that balance of just gut instinct and using the data. You talk about scanning products. Like, how do you go about that? Cause I think that's so important from a decision making perspective because now there is so much data. But, but how do you do that in a way that allows you to to move forward and not just get into analysis paralysis, but on the other hand, not just wing it and just go for something? Again, the two models here. We ultimately leaned way further into this model of helping brands sell their own products. So the types of data points we would get into were different than if we were looking to sell a product ourselves, but under our own brand. You know, data for your own product you want to bring to market is, you know, there are some similarities, but, you know, it's trend analysis, it's sort of market fit. Where's the competition? What are the price points they're at? How do they review? What are you going to do differently? And you have to kind of recognize that there's a lot of people trying to do what you're doing in that model. And so the novel thing we did was use some of those points of analysis, but then we bring it over to somebody else's brand. So we, we'd look at an existing brand and market and say, how are they being disrupted by those things that those private label companies are going to do? Those, those products that are going to only exist on Amazon, how are they going to disrupt you? You know, the beautiful thing about Amazon and then, you know, over time is these tools that would come out, you know, the, the thing that made Amazon so competitive versus other marketplaces is this thing they have called sales rank. And it tells you how well any product is selling as compared to any other product in its category. So if we wanted to sell, you know, Buddhas right here, I could look at Amazon right now and I could tell you what the number one Buddha is, what, which the number one Buddha is, what's the price point, what it reviews at, what are the materials of it, how long it's been selling, how long it's been selling well, does it fluctuate price point over time, does it get seasonal? And, you know, back in the day, I had this like indie, this guy from India who built me this tool that did some of these things. And now there's just off the shelf tools that do, you know, that run circles around the tool I had built. And so it's a beautiful thing, but you have to recognize everybody has access to this data. And if you really want to move forward with something these days, whether it's working with a client or it's developing your own product, if everybody has access to the same things, what is it that you're going to bring to that that's going to be different, that's uniquely you or a relationship that you have that's going to be unique to that product? Because if, if you're all just playing on the same playing field, Whoever's making it and can sell it for cheaper than you and with the best materials is probably going to beat you unless you can outbrand them, unless you can have more better influencers than them. You can have influencers that have skin in the game of your products. I always think about what are the levers that nobody else can pull that you can pull. Those are the types of things I like to run towards. How do you do that? The balance for like to know when to go for it? What data points do you use? I mean, you talk a lot about it obviously Amazon, but I think this pertains to any data stream and any kind of competitive analysis or whatever you may have. But how do you go to actually say and go, hey, let's go do this? There's a lot of times, you know, when you think about what do you say yes to versus what you say no to. And we got pretty good at saying no, as weird as that sounds. We just knew what fit our model and what fit other people's models better. Uh, so we always, even, even, you know, former employees becoming entrepreneur, the amount of business we handed off to former employees because it just didn't fit our model. And they saw that as an opportunity and they spun up a model that would work for it. We loved finding homes for opportunities. The ones that we said yes to were the ones that we, you know, deep down knew that we could move the needle on. So, you know, there is a level of faith that you have to take that, you know, that you're going to be able to do it and, and things are going to sort of stay the same. You know, if, if all this holds true, this will work you know, including not only like market conditions, but even the people that you're working with at these organizations, like if they're still employed by this company, this all holds true. You know, we had a pretty safe fire formula for success when it came to our business model. More broadly speaking, 
you know, again, if we go back to the things that you can bring value to that nobody else can, you, you know, you have to believe in that enough that if it doesn't go the direction that you think it's going to go, that over time, you're still so excited about it. It's not really going to matter. Like you're not going to get caught up into the day to day because this is a year to year thing for you. And then those are the things that, you know, it's great to go try to make a quick buck. And I admire a lot of people that do that. And, and it's fun to do that. I love doing that my whole life. But now it's like, you know, quick bucks can come and go. <laughs> and so it's how do you think about the things that are really, you know, building value for the long term? Yeah, it's interesting to think about the levers that you can pull that you can control and differentiate and stand out. So yeah, if it's, you know, it's the product or if it's not the product, it's the marketing, it's existing customers and clients that you can leverage. It's the ability to build a uh, enduring brand over time. I think it's an interesting point to say like, hey, what are the things that we can actually control and, and really stand out from the competition? I think the other thing that's really important too is to identify like, and what what is it going to take from you to do it? I did this TikTok experiment where I just set up a, a channel and was doing Amazon product reviews. Again, I'm looking for levers that people on Amazon aren't doing. So this is right sort of at the beginning of COVID. And it was product reviews. It was, uh, or like, you know, product demos and then coupon codes. I'm like, let's just figure out TikTok. Let's try to learn this. And it was great. It grew and it was cool and it was fun and you learn stuff. But, you know, the amount of bandwidth that it took out of me to do it versus the output, like, I was just like, this is just, and, and, and sort of the headspace it would put me in creatively. I was like, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like if I, how I feel about this. So I think the other thing too is even if you've got that amazing lever that you get to pull that nobody else pulls, if you're the only one who can pull that lever, <laughs> you're going to be the one pulling the lever. So you have to be comfortable with that, you know, as, as a recourse, especially if it's not going the direction that you want it to, and you're the one shouldering most of that weight. So I think it's really important to focus on, on that sort of as a North Star, you know, and make sure that you're going to enjoy it, you know, even when the times aren't as good as you want them to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you're out on your own island, right? I mean, you're doing things that are different and it's different. And, and I've been reading this book by uh, Mike Michalowicz about get different. And it's like, he, he talks about people want to stand out, but they don't want to stand out, which is a little bit of a can't out both. But I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, actually, I'd love to hear that from you in terms of that story. Like, what was that like when you decided to do some things that were really new and different in a platform like TikTok, which is not that I'm a huge TikTok guy, but not used specifically for that kind of content. I'm always experimenting with social. After we sold, I did quite a bit on LinkedIn to see if people cared about Amazon topics on LinkedIn. Turns out they did for a while. They still do. It's just, there's a lot of people talking about it. So it's hard to sort of cut through the noise these days. But it was, yes, it was about giving value. And that value got a lead. That would be cool. But that wasn't the intention. The intention was learning LinkedIn. You know, even out of that, I got, I got to do a LinkedIn course, which was kind of cool about selling stuff on Amazon. When it came to TikTok, it's just that it's like, why is it working for some people? I have a film degree too in a past life. So I was like, it, it was definitely like drumming up some of those, the fun that I had in film school where I'm like, man, well, okay, I can put text here and we do a voice to text and we use this track and we use this filter like, why is it working? And when you're going into those new things, I think the thing that people get so caught up with, with one, and, and I'm, I probably do this the wrong way where you're a perfectionist. I don't know if the opposite, opposite of a perfectionist is, but like, I just sometimes focus on good, not great. Cause great can take a lot longer than good. And it's great to be great, but you know, good. If, if I have a lot of good and then one great, I don't know. <laughs> There's definitely a balance there. So in the beginning of any content strategy or, or net new thing. I, 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 you know, I try to be good and I try to get it out there and I try to get feedback and then I try to iterate. 
and then you know make it better over time, evolve it to what people are receptive to. So when the TikTok thing started, I think the first, I think the first one was a discount code, and then I just started doing videos about stuff my wife was ordering on Amazon. And I'd like, I'd open a box, I had no idea what it was. Like my wife today opened this, I bought this. I was like, I don't even know what this. Like half the time I didn't know what it was or what it was for. But and those were cool and they were whatever, but they didn't really get engagement. And then you know when I started doing like coupon codes. Those got engaged. When I started doing product reviews, those got more engagement. So you sort of start learning the audience as you go. And I think everybody's so, you know, they want it to be great in the beginning because they want results. But in the beginning, nobody's paying attention to anything you're doing. And it, good, I know greatness will bring attention sometimes, but not always because what you think is great isn't always great to everybody else. And so sometimes it's okay to be good, just get it out there and get some feedback and then try to go towards great, but don't start there. Yeah, I mean, just the idea of getting it out there, you know, it's like, I think that's really important. I thought about that with my first book, The Savage Leader. It was told by someone, hey, you could go down and get a traditional publishing deal. And I thought, you know, that's going to slow me down. I want to get this thing out there. I'm going to go the self-publishing route to say, do people think I'm crazy? Is this like, you know, idiocy? Do people actually learn something from this? I ended up going down that route, but just, I wouldn't quite say it's as, you know, testing and putting it out there because obviously it took a lot of work to publish it and make it like a, a complete package. But I think it's a really important point. And and something I know you do, you do a lot of tinkering and testing and just even, you know, asking yourself, why is this trending? Why are people watching this video, whether it's Mr. Beast on YouTube or different influencers and whatnot? Yeah, I think the other thing that people need to remember, too, is like when you're starting out something like nobody cares, no one's paying attention to you. And if you do a post or, or whatever, or, you know, and nobody comes to, you know, your book signing like it's sad, but they also, nobody knows. So you can try again. <laughs> like it's okay to fail. People fail publicly all the time and they still come back. So, you know, when you fail and nobody's watching, it's okay. Cause you, you learned and then you iterate on it. And I think everybody's so scared of, you know, criticism and feedback and that sort of thing. But there's a lot of people vying for people's attention. And, and, and if you don't get their attention, it's okay. And you're building a business that requires attention, figure out, you know, how you spin it your way to get it. But, you know, if you do something and it doesn't get the engagement you want, it's okay. Like you're learning. It's better to like fail quietly than I think fail publicly. That's interesting. If it's not successful, it doesn't trend. It's like, yeah, no one sees it, right? It's, it's like in your own echo chamber out there. Yeah, I put all this time and effort in this and like, good, like, cool. Hopefully you learned something from that process. Nobody liked it. Sorry. So go try again. And, and if you don't have the motivation to try again, then maybe you shouldn't have done it in the first place because you're going to fail a lot. Yeah. I, I, so I know you've had a lot of success in terms of building brands, either helping companies sell on Amazon or building your own brands. I'd just be curious. I mean, I know you're, you know, after selling your company quite successfully, you know, do you think about or how do you think about building your own personal brands? I know you're, you're out there doing these videos on TikTok. I know you're very active on Instagram and on LinkedIn. And I think a lot of people probably think about how do I actually build my own personal brand and how do I put it out there? Like, how do you think about that? You know, or, it, you know, if you don't intentionally, I'm just curious in terms of like what goes through your mind in terms of building that brand for yourself. You know, like myself evolving back in the day, you know, it was, Oh, everyone just read a Gary V book and he'll tell you how to build a brand, pick your niche and you're off. You're, you know, you're looking at like a marketer. No one's talking about, I don't know, Buddha. <laughs> There's a lot of demand for Buddha content. I like Buddha. Why don't I talk about Buddha content, right? I mean, that's like the, you know, so you get all these people on various channels talking about certain little niches. And then what happens over time is as they gain popularity, and you'll see this, and I mean, TikTok made this more popular than anything. As they gain popularity, they all sort of start looking like each other because the algorithm tells them what's working. 
put text here, use music here. Oh, that video that did those things got a million views. Well, I'll just do that too, but I'll do it with my little spin. You know, as there's this evolution of content or de-evolution of, you know, I guess the evolution of content is like the sort of the de-evolution of originality to some degree, not to all degrees. There's still amazing content that's completely unique. But as you're putting that out there, you're also attracting the people that are receptive to whatever it is you put out there. And so if you're putting out stuff that maybe you don't really believe in, or even a product that you really believe in, and then you attract all these people that believe in the thing that you don't even really believe in, well, now you've got followers that are sort of inauthentic to you. And so I think of it more of, yeah, I always like things that go fast. And I, and I, I got spoiled with this business that grew really quickly and had quick results. And, you know, it just, it was a rocket ship and it was, it, you know, it was enjoyable and all these things. But I go back and think about building things maybe slower, but more authentically and being tracked by people that you want to be tracked by. And it's not just a vanity number of how many are paying attention to you. It's how many are actually finding value in what you're saying. And I think too often, everything's so algorithmically driven, we start going more generalized because that's how you know your content's often rewarded. I've heard you talk about something interesting. I think it's kind of cool. Is you talk about balancing your life by living in the polarities. I just love to just, uh, like, what do you mean by that? How does it impact your life? I'm odd. We'll just start there. I like fast results. So I, I'm constantly, and there's a reason, the reason why there's a Buddha on my desk, because I have to like willingly make myself try to slow down physically and mentally is like as much as possible, because I'm just always moving in my brain. And with that, I like want quick results. So I love pressure testing things. And pressure tests, you know, could be two weeks, it could be, it could be a month, it could be two years, if I'm into it. I just want to see results in something as fast as humanly possible. And so the way that I find that is I'm either all in or I'm not going to do it at all. For me, that keeps up with that sort of angst that I have to figure out if this is a good avenue or not. So for instance, you know, we were talking about book writing the other day and I was like, man, I'm going to do like a, like a, like a kid's book maybe or something like that. And so that's my latest, like, that's the latest like obsession. Like I, I have obsessions. And so that's been the latest one. And like, I feel bad because my wife has to put up with these, you know, constant changing states of mind that I have where I'm like, I'm, I'm working on a poem in my brain and I'm standing in front of her. I'm like, this isn't good. All right. I'm not doing anything that, that, that this thing would say of being mindful. So, but I like moving fast and living in polarities because there is a balance in there somewhere, but it isn't always balanced. You, you sometimes have to come back because <laughs> you've gone too far. That's tricky, right? You know, in sort of living that way, but it obviously is a big uh, boost for you from a creative perspective, definitely. It's just what works for me. I've never, you know, been shy to tell people that I'm strange and I've got strange habits and I eat weird, I work out weird. But I think what it does for me is I like having a different perspective on the world. And when I walk a different path, it gives me that different perspective. It allows me to see things differently than others. And I like seeing things differently. Yeah, I think that's something people can relate to in terms of just like seeing things differently, being creative. Obviously, you saw this opportunity in the marketplace. Like, you know, how do people go about doing that? Obviously, it's just like part of who you are. It's just like part of your DNA and just the way you live your life. But like, practically speaking, how can people actually develop some of that, that muscle to see things differently? Anything you would advise people to do? I think the word sort of creative people, people get scared of that word, creativity. 
because as they get older, you know, as they get bigger, it tends to feel smaller. And I think we over-index creativity with visual references to it. So videos and books and music, you know, music, like I said, music, like a music video, like you're like, wow, they're so creative. They're using those pieces of their brain. I'm never like that. And then they'll go home and make like an amazing meal that those people couldn't make. And so I think that if you look at these creative channels, it's like, what are the things that excite you? What would you like to be really good at? What is exciting for you to do when you're not good at it? And if you can strike veins like that, you know, it's, it's like, having you know an outlet plugged into you you get so excited you're so full of energy you just want to you know do it it's like these people that you know pick up a guitar later in life and they they become really proficient at it very quickly because all of a sudden they're like whoa i had no idea that i had this in me so i think those veins are in you creatively but you know you have to find them and you have to know that they're not always going to be in the traditional sense of the word that we think creativity means yeah i think it's a super important point and i never thought about myself as being creative, you know, yeah, I could very process driven, very analytical. And then writing and publishing my first book, I'm like, oh, I don't fancy myself as an author. And I started just to just step into that space and go, you know what, I am an author, right? And you know, you and I kind of, I don't know, semi joking about it, we had coffee a couple weeks ago, I talked about like, I said, you know, like, I'm an artist, you know, which is which is kind of like a way of putting that out there for myself is like, you know what, it's redefining it. Am I like, you know, Van Gogh or any kind of modern and modern artist? Absolutely not. But it's like redefining creativity because it looks very different on people. And I think just people seeing that in them or finding that in them, I think is super important. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the way that you would approach a baseball game. I remember that I think the Chargers had a defensive coach at one point. They're like, he's the most creative defensive coach. They, they would say that. They, they, they would say he's the most creative play caller or something like that. And again, like they're, you know, I think we discount that word so quickly, but it's true. The, the way that people approach anything can be really creative. We just often, you know, attribute it to arts. And I don't think we should do that. Ryan, where can people go to find more about you and connect with you on social media? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Just Ryan, R-Y-A-N, Mulvaney, M-U-L-V-A-N-Y. And uh, yeah, just shoot me a note on the LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way. Well, Ryan, hey, this has been a lot of fun and uh, appreciate your time. I know you're busy, guys. So thanks for coming on today. Yeah, for sure, man. Anytime. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.